The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! It's just the kind to make you drive yourself away Each simple gesture done by me is counteracted And leaves me standing here with nothing else to say Completely baffled by a backward indication That an inspired word will come across your tongue Hands moving upward to propel the situation Have simply halted, now the conversation's done Back to the Third Man Podcast, the Jack White Third Man Records History Program, which we produce semi-regularly, and I'm your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. Oh, James, our lives are a circus, and we've endeavored to continue- and we are, but the clowns in it. <laughs> and we've endeavored to power through a seventh season amongst- said circus and i must say uh i'm proud of us for getting as much done as we have uh-huh yeah um call us the ringling brothers because we are trapezing back into your <laughs> ear holes for yet another edition of our jack white at third man records history podcast and today i think we're talking about the elephant in the room paul yeah so i think this is going to be a three-part series and it is an album analysis and review show that we do from time to time, although we are running out of albums to analyze and review. Fortunately, Jack keeps making new records, so uh, we're able to keep replenishing the old well there. But this is one we haven't touched yet, and it's the only White Stripes album we haven't touched. It's the album Elephant, 2003's Elephant. And I must say, and I was thinking about this in the car this morning in advance of this recording, I have a lot of 
I, I was going to say interesting feelings. I don't know if they're that interesting, but here we are. Uh, I have a lot of feelings about this record and why I had such trepidation about touching it up to this point, because this album has more than any White Stripes album, more than any Jack album, aside from maybe Lazaretto, has the most um, nostalgic quality for me because it was the first Stripes record I ever heard. And when I listen to this album, I find myself transported back to my dorm room in college, freshman year, listening to this in a very visceral way, which actually makes it feel a little disconnected from other Jack White projects. It doesn't even feel like a Jack album. It feels like a nostalgic 2003 thing for me in a way that's kind of odd because it's hard for me to hear it objectively. And also, there's a fear I have that when I go back and listen to this, it won't be as good as I remember it. Fortunately, it is, mostly. But there is the, I do have that fear about this record, because I, I didn't want to ruin it. You know, Seven Nation yeah. Army has been so played to death that it's ruined forever for me. <laughs> Not that I don't like the song anymore, but like it's so... Ubiquitous. Hey, do you have any hot takes you want to throw on Twitter about that song? <laughs> By the way, if anyone is still out there to talk about Meg White's drumming, just just stop. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of Jack Gray at this point. Just just fucking stop. You saw the dude apologize and stuff, right? Yes, I did. <laughs> I did. I we're we're referring to this a hole journalist who was talking shit about Meg, which is really original, dude. Yeah, really hot. Real hot take. I hope that that was just guerrilla marketing to get them into the rock hall. I don't know, but it got Chuck Tingle, uh, <laughs> renowned romantic author, sure, to weigh in on Meg White's drumming ability. And uh, he's pro, pro Meg. Pro Meg. The, the man who wrote a book about having sex with a velociraptor loves it. Haven't, that's, okay. That uh, Have <laughs> not seen any detractors, really. You had Questlove out there. You had Karen Hilson out there. Anyway, this is not a Meg defense podcast because she doesn't need fucking defending. She's great. <laughs> and she was one half of that band, no matter how you slice it. Also, she deserves to live in peace. So let's leave, let's leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> let's leave Meg alone. But anyway, um, so James, I don't know how you feel about this record, but that, those are my thoughts on it. I also had trepidation about talking about this record because it is their most critically successful album. I mean, debatably. I know Nicky Thump kind of reached some heights there too, but um, it's definitely their most commercially successful and had their most reach. And I feel like a lot of people have a lot of thoughts. And going over it, I'm a little worried that we're not going to get all of the information or people will be disappointed. I don't know. But anyway, um, yeah, it's a big one because it's it, it carries a lot of weight with it. And it's interesting that you say that it brings you back to a time because it brings me back to a time too. Like it does feel quintessentially early 2000s, but the music itself doesn't because it doesn't sound like anything else of that time, which is strange that <laughs> it kind of, it has this timeless quality and yet feels cemented in early 2000s no i think that that's the hallmark of a band of their stature frankly because that's the way people feel about beatle records they are simultaneously of the 60s but 
so far ahead of what anyone else was doing in the 60s that they are timeless, even though they are locked in time. It's kind of how I also feel about Led Zeppelin a little in that they're kind of pigeonholed into the early to mid 70s. And when you think about Led Zeppelin, you think about, you know, plant up there with those 70s genes and all the ensuing tropes of the decade. But then again, when you listen to the music, it's it's feels sort of timeless. And I think that's because they were both, well, both Beatles, Zeppelin, Stones, Stripes, all these classic bands, Costello, even like acts that persist like Costello and, you know, Elvis Costello and people like that. They're pulling from old music. They're standing in a line, they're standing on the shoulders rather of artists that came before and doing it in a transparent way which pulls it out of time, you know, and makes it feel more timeless. Yeah, I mean, it took Led Zeppelin a lawsuit to be transparent about it, but yes. <laughs> well, sure. We don't have to mention There's that. a whole episode <laughs> we did on Led Zeppelin, so you can go listen to that. Anyway, so that that was my trepidation going into this. And honestly, I was, <laughs> my first thought, because I, I was actually struggling, like, what the hell are we going to do for this next run of episodes? And I was like, I don't even know what to talk about anymore. Maybe we'll do a history of the cast corridor going back to the 1800s. And then I was like, no, we should just do fucking elephant. <laughs> so and now I'm kind of interested in the cast corridor. We still may do that episode, but we're also doing this time to the elephant 20th anniversary, 20th. Yeah. 20th anniversary and the impending vault release. So in this episode, we'll do sort of the setup. We'll bring us to the track by track in episode two. We'll go through the tracks and the reception and stuff. And then in part three, hopefully the vault will be in both of our hands at that point. It's, there's six weeks there. So hopefully, or, yeah, six weeks there. So hopefully that'll happen and we can go and um, review what new stuff we learned uh, from that vault and new music and stuff. So James, instead of doing anything else, why don't we just jump <laughs> into this topic? Because it's a big, long topic, like a big elephant. Yeah, pack your trunk and let's go. I was going to do an elephant noise, but I feel like it would break something. <laughs> if I said I had to do that. What's your idea of rock and roll? This attitude. Me? <laughs> I don't know. I would agree with that, probably. Yeah. You know. And a couple guitars. same 50 people every every town you know it was it seemed like uh, we started the tour and we said well we're not going to do this for 10 years of playing these same 50 people who like rock and roll in every town or whatever that it was a few years ago so there was definitely an ambition when you started the band well yeah i guess it got to the point where i mean the thing we've always gone through is that people have always sort of claimed that you know their secret band is now too popular i mean even when we had our first hundred people at a show 
there was people like, oh, you know, it's over. my secret band is gone. Yeah. And then it was, you know, like two years later, oh, they made a second album. Oh, I hate them now. Yeah, yeah. They, they, so we've gone through that. Theory, I think it's become now, hasn't it, basically? Yeah, and now we get people who only have his white blood cells, and then they see us on the cover of a magazine or something, like, oh, that's my band, and you know, they sold out. <laughs> like, you just got here. I think every artist, their environment contributes to what they do. And Detroit's uh, very much a part of the sound of the White Stripes. Elephant is birthed of this post-fame era of the White Stripes. Not post, like, mega-fame, but their breakthrough success with White Blood Cells has put them in the public consciousness and changed the dynamic of the band in the context of Detroit, in the context of the other acts, and in the context of popular music at the time. They're not the post-Elephant band, Mm -hmm. which would be even bigger, but things have changed a great deal. So It's wild that people called them the pre-Elephant Band before they released it. It was strange yes, that they said that. That's right. They, they had been on Letterman at this point, so like they've clearly hit a mark. Yeah. It's like when people during the First World War ran around calling it World War One, and you're just like, what are you alluding to? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't seem so great. <laughs> so, you know, major outlets are now talking about this group their songs are touching on both the snobby rock elitists and the everyday teenager looking to listen to fell in love with a girl so it's not quite equal measure there i think they're still kind of in that tastemaker sort of category but it's in this environment where you know in the subsequent year in 2002 where they play snl they go on top of the pops as you mentioned letterman there's the MTV Movie Awards. There's lots of different outlets for this band in that time. Some of those come after the recording of Elephant, but it's all sort of in that mix. So they're grappling with this fame thing. Jack White told The Onion, well, there was a time when it was people calling my house nonstop. And we're lucky now that we have people who handle all those phone calls and requests for us. But it still comes down to, okay, you have opportunities to do this, this, and this, and we say no all the time. I'm just worried about having somebody else make those decisions about where we're going to play and who's going to be with us and all that jazz. Because I want to stand behind everything that's represented by that name, the White Stripes. I want to be able to defend it. So it's best when it comes from us directly, which is an interesting quote because he would go on to realize that in way bigger ways with Third Man, the label, Third Man, the retail shops, Third Man, the pressing plant, you know, all of these things. But even this early on, he was very much in control of the narrative or wanted to be. There's that famous thing where they turned down the Gap ad, right? Yeah. Not only the the narrative, uh, the music. He wants as much control over his own art as possible, and his image as possible, and the band's image as possible. Right down to him owning the songs, still and not having sold them to, to anybody else. Right. 
But then when you look at this quote, he says, calling my house. He's still living in that house with the weird <laughs> shit yeah. on the walls and the, you know, all that stuff. So things haven't changed in that way, but they've started to change around Jack and Meg. And that must have been a very surreal situation. Whenever we have a Detroit person on, I inevitably ask, what was the dynamic shift like when they broke big? Because Detroit musicians, there's this close-knit family kind of thing going on there. But now suddenly they're on David Letterman and rubbing shoulders with SNL and and the like. And then you have to wonder, that must have been so weird. And we know what wound up happening after this. You know, after they broke even bigger, they they had to break up with Detroit. They had to move on. It wasn't working anymore. But at this time, they're still trying to make it work. And there's a lot of struggle and a lot of angst there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I imagine he's just sitting, watching his telephone ring off the hook while he's in that Uncle Sam costume. <laughs> uh, just... Just watching a phone. You seem more satisfied than the first time we met. I mean, the first time we met, it was very crazy for you guys. The, <laughs> I mean, the enemy, you know, putting you on the cover of the magazine, and mm. you know, I didn't I even think you had your album out at the time. Right. And, and I mean, they took a big punt, and you know, they were right. You know, all fairness, they were right to put you on the cover. Uh, but you seemed a bit freaked out by it. Uh, you know, was there a certain time when you just like, and then you know, we hooked up at Reading last year, and you were just mm. so chilled. Mm. You know, was there a time when when you guys sort of thought, you know, we should enjoy this. We shouldn't be so stressed out about what everybody else. Yeah, does. we were very worried at the beginning because we'd been doing whatever we wanted to for so long, and. We thought that sort of the English press was going to make us popular for a month and then hate us, you know, and then we would be left holding the bag. So we were really angry about it at first because we didn't know how to handle it because it was so, we didn't have, you know, when all that attention came at us, we had no lawyer, no manager, no publicist, and it was just me, Megan, and someone selling records, you know, on tour. It would, we didn't know anything about that. We weren't signed to a label. So, <laughs> so how are you handling now? You do have management and stuff. I mean, obviously it makes things easier in terms of organizing tours and stuff like that but do you find that it's more politics to have to deal with and more people to have to call and arrange things rather than just going direct to the source no it's good we still everything is still has to be brought in front of us first you know to approve of it and then uh, I think those people just got to handle all the insaneness of phone calls and things like that you know and, uh, but no decisions are made without us making it you know it's in this environment you know when they start writing songs for what would be this new LP interestingly but I guess probably commonplace they actually wound up going into the studio without a lot of the lyrics even finished but i think that that's uh, that's probably something fairly pervasive throughout you know uh rock music history you know also interestingly this album has far fewer songs that he wrote as a child so i thought that and i guess i think it does Sort of, but I found this interesting exchange between Ben Blackwell and Jack White from the from the time. Ben says, I know some of the songs on Elephant were being played as early as 1999, hmm. which is not necessarily him as a child, but yeah. Jack says, I just don't like to throw things away. There's a time and a place for them to hang around. Sometimes they all just sit there and it's time to do them, I guess. Ben says, he never throws away a song because he writes good songs. The man never forgets a song, much like an elephant. Giving songs to other bands, that was his idea of everyone being friends in Detroit. He hoped everyone would write songs for each other. If it doesn't work for your own band, maybe it'll work for another. But I guess he was about the only one to ever do it. So that was an interesting exchange to me because I too thought, oh, yeah, this is mostly new material. But then you do hear 
an exchange like that and you think, oh, but I guess some of this was sort of hanging around at the time. We'll get into more of what was and wasn't hanging around. But that w- I thought that was interesting. Hmm. We wrote about four of those songs in the studio, actually. I mean, it, it just, uh, just you have, it's just better creatively in the studio because we don't get much time other than that really to work on a lot of things. So. The uh, other two aspects to this were... In early conversations, evidently there was a plan to have this be more of a quiet record. I can't really find a lot of corroboration for that, but I've seen it written about in places that are of repute, so it's not just sort of hearsay. But the fact of the matter is that whatever the intention about a quiet record, which we'll get into some of that early quieter stuff, it kind of dissolved pretty quickly in the recording process because when you hear this album, it is um, loud. It's a loud it's bombastic, album. yeah. Yeah, it, but do you think that's talking about the loudness wars kind of deal, like the mixing of it, or do you think they're referring more to softer songs? I'm referring specifically to the Sound of Mutant Blues book, which I used heavily in the research of this, which is a great book I've been using since the beginning of this podcast, but which is heavily researched and includes you know, stuff from Ben, stuff from Jack, stuff from original sources. So in that book, it says that there was an intent to make this a calm, sweet, and reflective record. Ah. The sweetness thing we'll get to, because the death of the sweetheart is (laughs) one of these, one of these Jack concepts, but like young Jack, you know, (laughs) young Jack concepts. I mean, he's 28 here, so he's not like a spring chicken, but he's like, he's still playing around in this young Jack sandbox. And by young Jack, I don't mean to sound dismissive, but you know, when you're in your late teens and twenties and early twenties specifically, you have a lot of notions (laughs) about stuff that maybe don't carry throughout your life. Maybe your position evolves a bit on these things. And some of the mythology that Jack embraces so vocally early on, eventually if it doesn't get abandoned, it at least gets downplayed. Do you know what I mean? It's like the yeah. him wearing the, the big three you know, or the car thing on his neck and that kind of like the automotive rallying, all that stuff. It sounds a little young to me in the sense that it's sort of idealistic and is um, without maybe seasoning, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I'm looking at the track list now and I'm I'm starting to kind of pinpoint where he may have started with that quiet, calm, reflective. There's a few. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to be the boy to warm your mother's heart and you've got her in your pocket, but kind of together. And, and they are, it's kind of the nice quiet middle point of the album. And, uh, I can see why he might, you know, have that as a thesis statement with those two songs. Yeah. And then it diverges pretty quickly, but that brings me to the other thing that this record did wind up becoming, which was the quote English LP. So, I didn't really know why that happened until very late in the research process. In fact, some of the stuff I found this morning, which I I sent another frantic email to Ben Blackwell to confirm it. So Jack and Meg are doing their, I would argue, their first major post-fame UK and European tour (laughs) in late 2001. So this tour spans from November 6th, 2001 to December 6th, 2001. So they spend a full month overseas. And I think that leaves this huge impression on them. And 
it is in that environment. I mean, aside from being embraced wholly by John Peel and those sessions at Maida Vale, which we will get to later in this record because it actually has something to do, those Maida Vale sessions have something to do with the, what winds up on this record. But there's this embrace, this warm, strong embrace of the band in Europe and the UK specifically at this time. And there's been more interest, I think, in tonight's entertainment than uh, within Radio 1 than in anything else that we've done that I can remember, and we're obviously very pleased about that. And uh, we hope that you're going to enjoy the rest of the programme and uh, the contribution of tonight's live band. I'm very impressed with the, with the red trousers there, Jack, very similar to the ones that I wore for the Liverpool-Real Madrid final in Paris all those years ago. Uh, from the studio audience now, thunderous and well-deserved applause for the White Stripes. attention in England all of a sudden and the strokes had just happened in England a couple months before uh, nobody was really calling it anything and they started asking us what what we were and we said garage rock because that's what all the bands in Detroit used to say you know I don't think anyone was using that term before it's since the 60s really but it's funny. I mean, who cares? It's just this term, I guess, you know. But I, it's just rawness, I think. It's just rawness where it's no, no attention to detail. <laughs> it's just the real rock and roll, you know. And so from the space of them returning home to coming back in the spring, the idea is formed at some point along that line. This is going to be our English record. So they try to do the different records in different locations in white blood cells era they record in memphis which we covered with uh, Stuart sykes when we did our white blood cells uh, xx episode last season and also we did an analysis and review of that as episode two of the program so you can listen to those in fact don't listen to those early ones at all but so this one was going to be that change it was going to be this different thing it was going to be their uh, uk record their english record so that brings us to Torag Studios and Bruce Brand. So talking to Bruce Brand, as we did back in episode 40-something of the show, I actually went back and listened to that conversation because it was really, he detailed the chronology. I just, I don't think I absorbed it at the time or I was too enamored with the, the story of him, you know, putting tea on the kettle and getting called out for it at the end. But he actually lays it out pretty clearly. And that was corroborated about what I found later on in my research. So basically what happens is the band goes on this tour and Bruce <laughs> Brand, who was a mutual friend with long gone 
John from Sympathy for the Record Industry, Bruce was asked to basically be the White Stripes roadie, but also lend them his equipment. <laughs> like Meg played his drums or his band's drums, the Masonics drums throughout that tour and stuff. And I think the Masonics opened and played for them at this time too. So that's when Bruce and Jack and Meg start hanging out, palling around. But basically Bruce is Jack and Meg's guide throughout this UK tour. Um, and at the same time too, Jack White and Holly Golightly shared the same agent, huh. which also put them in Bruce Brand's sort of sphere. So while they're there on a day off, Bruce took the White Stripes to the studio he'd been using to record the Masonics, which is called Toe Rag Studios. But Jack and Meg were already familiar with that studio because the henchmen had recorded there. So when Bruce took them there, not knowing that the henchmen had recorded there necessarily, they went, oh, right, that place the henchmen recorded at, this would be great, I'd love to see that. So there's two different sort of things at play that bring them to Toe Rag specifically. When they got there, Jack was very impressed with the setup and met Liam and they really hit it off in that initial meeting. He recorded the album once again with Liam uh, at Tyrag mm. Studios, and uh, he's had a busy year. Yeah, yeah, it's been. Uh, well, I think that that place is just brilliant. You know, people are starting to take notice of how amazing uh, you know he's got it set up there in Hackney. So uh, let's, uh, yeah, I think everyone should just check that out. I recommend that to anybody recording. It's so realistic and so far away from this Pro Tools and digital technology and all that that uh, you can't help but force yourself to be creative. You know. How'd you find it in the first place? We had heard Billy Childish records, uh, and a lot of uh, sort of London garage rock bands had recorded there. We liked the tones that were coming out of it, and then uh, a friend of ours from the band The Henchmen in Detroit went there and recorded some 45, and he was telling us how great it was. So the White Stripes are staying at a Holiday Inn around the corner from Bruce Brandt's house, <laughs> and it's in this time frame, this sort of staying there doing these UK dates, where Jack that night writes a song specifically that he wants to sing with Holly Golightly, which is It's True That We Love One Another. So this was, this was written at that holiday, and Bruce Brand wound up saying, he came crashing around one night, and he was like, I've written a song that me and Holly can sing. So Bruce says they went to the studio to cut it the next day, making that the beginning of the recording of Elephant, and kind of in that quiet record sort of yeah. mode. Well, it's true that we love one another. I love Jack White like a little brother. Well, Holly, I love you too. But there's just so much that I don't know about you. Jack, give me some money to pay my bill. All the bill I'll give you, Holly, you've been using on pain pills. Jack, will you call me if you're able? I got your phone number written in the back of my Bible. I think you're pulling my leg And I think maybe I better ask Meg Meg, do you think Jack really loves me? You know I don't care Cause Jack really bugs me Why don't you ask him now? Well, I would, but Meg I really just don't know how Just say, Jack, do you adore me? Well, I would, Holly, but... So when I first started doing this research... I thought there was only one song that wasn't recorded in that spring of 2002 because that's what they say everywhere. 
But when you dig in, it's actually two songs. It's this song and another one, which I, I'm going to surprise you with later if you don't know the answer to it already. Okay. But two of the tracks were cut prior to the spring 2002 session. So, quote from Liam Watson, who is in charge of Toe Rag. The White Stripes first heard about the studio through the henchmen. John Hench did a session here one time. He was in London for a week. They liked the sound of all the old gear. And he was pretty aware of who we are. When we met up, he was asking me about a lot of records. He's a big fan of Billy Childish, The Headcoats, and The Headcoatees. So The Headcoats and The Headcoatees, Bruce Brand, Holly Golightly related acts. So it's all in this sort of soup. <laughs> They're all mixing yeah. together. All members of the uh, sympathy. Yes. And they cut yeah. this out, this track, not necessarily intended for the next record, but they just cut it because they were there. Holly was there. Jack wrote it right away. It was sort of getting it kind of done thing before they went off and started, not maybe not started, but continued their tour and then eventually went to Europe. So that happens. But recording proper of the album commences on April 24th, 2002 at Toe Rag. And that's basically the entirety of the album. And it was all put down in just shy of three weeks with sessions ending on May 13th. So Ben Blackwell confirmed this for me over email, but I was looking at the band's touring schedule and it seemed to me that the trip to London had to be expressly for that purpose and not a spontaneous stop along the way or something like that, because you get them discovering the studio in 2001 and then at some point making a plan to go back there in the following spring to lay down the new album. They only do about two pickup gigs along the way in London in, in 2001 at that time. Uh, one in London, one in Ireland, rather. And then they leave to head home and continue their White Blood Cells tour in the U.S. And it's not long after that where Jack breaks his hand and all that stuff, and or breaks his finger, rather. So I thought, and Ben confirmed this, I'm waiting on confirmation about the Holly thing in November 2001, but I'm pretty sure that that's real based on all the different corroborating things I found. I thought that the whole record was spontaneous, because you kind of think of White Stripes albums as spontaneous, but it wasn't. They had this really formative month in the UK where everyone's telling them how great they are. <laughs> and at some point between coming back and December 6th, before, by the way, cutting, I think they cut the um, Christmas single at that time, mm-hmm. um, and April, they make a plan specifically to go back to record with Liam. So this is not a spontaneous thing. This is very planned, orchestrated. We're going to go here and record this album. So that I thought was interesting because I never knew any of that. <laughs> yeah. And I never really connect that English tour to Elephant at all, but it, it's really the result of that tour. It's putting a nice connect the dots kind of timeline to it, which is one of the reasons we started this podcast is uh, all of these things seemed just to come out of thin air. And it's nice to see a kind of linear history yeah. start opening up throughout all of this and it's interesting that we learned a lot of this through bruce brand's interview which and then forgot about I it had, for three years yeah and then <laughs> promptly forgot about it yeah um go back and listen to that one it's actually really i listened to it recently and it's one of the few early episodes that's pretty good what a nice interviewee what a nice guest he was great yeah anyway anyway so a little about toe rag studios it was founded by liam watson and josh collins in 1992 and it's located at 166A Glen Road in London, Hackney. It is situated in a narrow alley in between semi-detached houses in what oh. we'd describe as a sort of dingy suburb. 
Uh, their earliest recordings were for bands such as the Earls of Suave, Steve Hooker, the Slingbacks, Holly Golightly, of course, and our old friend Bruce Brand with his bands, the Headcoats and the Masonics. Interestingly, and I get no other mention of this elsewhere, recent guest Marcy Bolan of the Von Bondies appears on the self-titled LP by Kiwi rock band The Datsuns, which we do mention when we talk to Marcy. And in 2002, also recorded a tow wreck. I'm not sure if they were clued in by John Hench or the Stripes, but that tow rag studio was certainly buzzing in the ears of Detroit bands at that time. Seems that way. It's probably, I'm guessing because of Bruce and Longon's friendship, I imagine that there's a lot of uh, knowledge, at least of, of this place being a place you can go and record stuff in, in England. And not for too much money because they're used to not. Right. They're used to small bands with no budgets, but here's another interesting footnote. And maybe I'll treat this as a trivia question, James. Maybe you can answer this. What band related to this show's debut LP was cut at Toe Rag about a year after the White Stripes recorded Elephant? What bands related to this show, like this podcast? It, it, relevant to this show. Relevant okay. to the third man world. Recorded at Toe Rag. Their debut LP. A year after the Stripes recorded Elephant. Hmm. Was it the Von Bondies? <laughs> uh, the Kills. Keep on your mean side. Oh, oh, which it's the uh, coming up on the twentieth anniversary of that. Yes. result of elephant because if it was recorded there a year after the stripes then it would be when elephant actually came out because elephant sat around for almost a full calendar year uh, before it actually came out i wonder how much knowledge jamie hints had of it probably from the area yeah probably quite a bit so i thought that was interesting it's a quote from liam it was easy working with the white stripes jack was very polite and good-mannered Politeness comes up a lot in this, so be prepared to hear politeness and sweetness a lot. It's weird. He got on with the job, very efficient. Every now and then, we'd stop for a cup of tea. A few times, he was still writing lyrics in the evenings. Meg's very sweet, very quiet, good fun. There's a lot of pressure on her. Interesting. If the drums are right, everything else sits on top. She's a good drummer. She's not flashy or anything, but once she's got the beat, she's very solid. We didn't have to do many retakes on the drums. 
Once she'd done her part, she didn't hang around unnecessarily. <laughs> she'd come up wow. to say hello once we were doing overdubs in the afternoon. So basically, Meg put down the drums and peaced out. And Jack and Liam tinkered. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> Which, uh, well, eh. I mean, when we talked to Stuart, like she was sleeping in a fucking sleeping bag while he was doing overdubs yeah. and stuff. I'm curious what, what she was up to during during that time. Was she just chilling at the Holiday Inn? Right. <laughs> <laughs> or was she hanging around fellow Detroiters or stuff, you know, in the area? Because I know a lot of bands were touring the UK. I'm curious if there were any touring Detroit acts in the area at the time or who she was hanging around with or if she was just shopping. I want to... I want to talk to Meg so bad, but I know I have many, many questions. So all the songs recorded at Towag were recorded using eight track reel to reel tape. Now this old school tech thing is another one of those young Jack, like rallying cry things, which lasted a very long time. That comes up a lot. And especially in these elephant interviews That's yeah, why I, I think he was trying to connect with the music that, he was making you know when you're exclusively inspired by classic rock blues and detroit punk who cut their shit on the cheapest stuff possible that was old and decrepit you want to mimic your mentors and you want to prove yourself to those people that you know you can do it too or at least capture the sound that they had too and so like i can understand him wanting to do that and i think that once he realized i don't know maybe he just clung to it for a little too long but he realize that he's you know they're just tools i don't know uh i think he hit the nail on the head this is a point where he had something to prove and i don't think by the time boarding house reach came around he felt like he had something to prove i think he felt like he had done it but i don't want to dwell on that because it's sort of irrelevant but take all of this with with that context in mind but the band goes out of their way to indicate that no computers were used in the recording writing mixing or mastering of the record At the time, a badge of honor. He told The Guardian, if we can't produce something that sounds good under those conditions, then it's not real to begin with. Getting involved with computers is getting involved with excess, especially when you start changing drum beats to make them perfect or making the vocal melody completely in tune with some program. It's so far away from honesty. How can you be proud of it if it's not even you doing it. That statement tracks for me because it aligns with his principles of the White Stripes and and carving it to the essence of simplicity. It is worth noting that their image is intentionally made a specific way, visually, smartly, to make sure that they can project this honest music to begin with. So it's it's a sort of a weird relationship with that making something perfect idea, which he doesn't like, but then he sort of does in a different way, just not in the music specifically. He uses that tool visually to allow people access to this music, which purposefully doesn't employ perfection in that way. The other thing to take into account is that, the, and I know we're, we're really harping on this one little tidbit, but like, when you record music analog, when you take pictures analog, when you do any of that analog, all of the retouching or re-recording or cutting or, you know, whatever editing you're doing to it is literally changing the music, 
copies of copies of copies sound different. And with a computer, you can have a copy of a copy and it's identical. The ones and zeros are the same. But when you're taking music and then you're re-recording it, it changes slightly. Everything about it is kind of showing where it came from and the scars of where it came from. And I kind of feel a sense of like honesty about it. I get why Jack was so enamored with it because it is yeah. definitely visceral. You're, you, everything you lay down analog is the, is cut into something. Yes. <laughs> yes. Although tape, well, tape is slightly different, but yeah. Uh, just in case I'm coming across as too harsh about this. I, I like that he did this. I like the sound it makes. You're not coming across too harsh. I find this particular discussion about Jack and his legacy and his changing to be quite interesting. And that's why we keep having it every three episodes or so. <laughs> yeah, <we've... laughs> yeah. Yes, we do talk about this. So Jack goes on to tell Sonic Magazine, digital recording devices are the devil's handiwork. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> they hollow out the talent of people and make them sound like mumbling robots. Kills their creativity. It makes the recordings totally lifeless, without soul. Here's where I really diverge on this issue. The following statement. Jennifer Lopez's latest hit single was written by 12 people and recorded by five producers and it consists of only Pro Tools and machines, and those things have nothing to do with making music. That is not music. That is a fucking computer program. It's a bunch of scientists trying to create something to make us feel good. They could just as well be making drugs, or a computer game, or dot dot dot. So, people I respect point that out all the time. Like, oh, there's all these people writing these songs. But, like, all that is, is the proper attribution of credit where it's due. If the Beatles were doing that, then you would have had that on Beatles songs. You would have seen uh, Aspinall and Evans and Martin and all these people. It's different. It's a different thing. <laughs> Again, this is an old thing. I'm not judging the man now on this. It just... Idle mice are the devil's friends. What? <laughs> uh, yes, idle mice. The, I would also like to just point out that when the Stripes are talking about this, they're talking about it in the context of, you know, I think it's fair to say a particularly manufactured era of pop music, maybe yeah. more so than in recent years, and then the advent of computers just complicating that. So there, this is being said not in a vacuum, but in the product of that era. I, I think it's also evident to me, I don't know if it's true or not, that he is not disparaging Jennifer Lopez's craft so much as he is disparaging how the craft is created. I would, well, um, I would so say I, he is disparaging the craft. He's just not disparaging her, her abilities. Right. Well, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. He's not saying that she's a bad singer, songwriter, etc., etc. He's just saying that the way it came about was below him. It's weird. That state, that whole statement is, it does leave a bad taste in my mouth uh, too. I get that. It's a product of its time. <laughs> yeah. This is before I think he's gotten a real glimpse of some of those other arts because I, you know, I would argue probably Beyonce has something similar going on with some of her songs and he wound up recording with her later and everything's fine. But anyway, I think he found a kindred spirit in Liam Watson for this reason. Uh, There's a quote from Liam, the studio, meaning Toe Rag, is built up to be like a studio used to be. 
it's not true that we've got no equipment made after 1963, like some press release said. That really pissed me off. But when Jack saw the place, he thought it was excellent. He was like, wow, there's nothing like this in Detroit. We went over to uh, England to the studio, Rag, and uh, that we had heard about. And we uh, thought the sounds coming out of it were really interesting. Studio's really nice, it's sort of an old warehouse, and it's a, it's a small room set up like an old English beat studio, really, with black and white checkerboard. Uh, Liam Watson, who owns the place, he, he wears a white lab coat, and he's kind of a mad scientist. For Jack and Meg, if I come in and, you know, I change a microphone around or something, and I'm wearing the white coat, I think it makes them, I think it makes them feel more confident, you know, about that I'm doing the right job. We had uh, great microphone techniques and old recording equipment I think has never been surpassed. I think it's really the pinnacle of technology for recording equipment. This one here was a favourite of uh, Jack's, which is the, uh, the 4038 ribbon mic. Some of the other ones, uh, Meg liked this one. Well, it sounded good on her voice, that one. I think he and Liam maybe had some of this thinking in common, especially this idea of 8-track tape and stuff. And Liam goes on to say, when we did Elephant, we were using an 8-track tape machine. If you're recording on 24-track, it takes longer. With 8-track, you can do a lot of things you can do on 24, but you have to mix them down. I like to record a band for as long as it takes. Most of the bands I've been recording till a couple of years ago never really had a budget. And that's where I, I learned to be fast. I can understand if it takes longer, but I prefer it this way. So meaning him putting it down in three weeks, that's very consistent with how Jack likes to work, get it done, get it, you know, done quick, but right, and then get it out kind of thing. Yeah, I think uh, in general, in any kind of art form, that's kind of what should be done because a piece of art is kind of, mostly a product of a, of, a, of a moment in your head, an idea in your head. And, and the faster you can get it out, the less it changes and kind of stays uh, what you originally intended. And I kind of appreciate that about the music. I'll just say one last thing about <laughs> his processes is that I think the creative impulses that working with analog create, like do, like they, they make you think on your feet and be a little more creative differently. And I think that tickles a certain part of his brain that yeah, he likes. He's like, sure. well, I'm, I can't do this with analog, so I have to think on my feet. And anybody with a computer could just do whatever. But there's a different set of problems that he is not seeing, and he, he's watching people who make it look easy. And so I think that he doesn't get the same satisfaction out of solving those problems. He gets yes. satisfaction out of solving other problems. So, I mean, you can find that uh, the same equipment in other studios in America and things, but uh, you can't. Uh, they also, in addition to it, have all this sort of computer and digital stuff. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of getting arguments with engineers to, to keep away from that because it's, it's forced to make the job easier in their, their minds. But it's also kind of, I think, destroys creativity a little bit and gets away from honesty, I think. Liam is not somebody you necessarily have to convince to keep this. No, he's the, great, the personality no. of <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's really good. He's, he's a great engineer. What's the button that he has? Because Dolph was telling me he's got some button. Filth knob? That's it, right? Filth knob, yeah. <laughs> One last quote from Liam about the environment in the studio while they were recording. 
The Pizza Go-Go in Hackney was delivering almost every day. I love that. We should get somebody from the Pizza Go-Go. I was going to say, do they still exist? (laughs) And every now and then we'd have Vietnamese or Chinese. No alcohol was consumed. But Meg might have a glass of whiskey when she came in the evening. (laughs) I love that Meg shows up drunk (laughs) at night while they're all tinkering away on this record. She puts the drums down. She goes and gets hammered. Well, maybe not hammered, but shows up with a glass of whiskey. It's funny to me. Jack was drinking a lot of soft drinks and teas. Not very healthy. Oh, they still exist. The Pizza Go-Go still exists. Uh, Yeah, uh, their delicious high-quality pizzas are made only with their own Bruce brand uh, and locally (laughs) sourced fresh ingredients. Uh, Yeah, you can still get them. Uh, Looks good. They're open. Go there, I guess. You want... Let's get someone on there. So here's a space of time that I can't really account for, and and hopefully we'll be able to pick up on this once the vault comes out. But they sit on this album for a year, basically, uh, because it is not released, the record, until April 14th, 2003 in the U.S. And I've seen some places listed as April 7th, so it's possible that the U.K. was a little early. Advanced copies of the record were sent to journalists as double LPs, in a plain red sleeve and worth noting this is before the vinyl resurgence so this was hold on hold your okay i'm looking at their menu i know this is (laughs) they got something called the new yorker paul do you want to guess what's on the new yorker pizza at pizza go go no uh pepperoni no (laughs) that's on the american hot but this is the new yorker paul sausage Nope. Fucking broccoli. I what? Nope. You got American hot dog, <laughs> barbecue sauce, melted cheese, and fried onions. Welcome to New York, baby. Its initial name was the We Hate You. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! The Chinese pizza has Chinese chicken, mushrooms, and sweet corn. What are they doing? That actually doesn't sound so bad. I had um, in, like an Indian-inspired pizza in Seattle, which was topped with like tikka, and I think instead of tomato sauce, they used masala sauce. Sounds that does sound delicious. It was fucking awesome. It was really good. But hot dogs? No, no, no. I, everything you said about that sounds terrible, and they should face international condemnation for it. Anyway, I want to see Joe Biden up there condemning. I want to see Dr. Jill Biden condemning them. Anyway, so the album was released on April 14th, 2003 in the U.S. And I've seen some places list April 7th as a release. So it's possible that was the U.K. release date. I have no idea. Advanced copies were sent to journalists as double LPs in a plain red sleeve. And worth pointing out, this is before the vinyl resurgence. So this was another act or another attempt to reinforce that old school tech idea, which is one of the things that did catch on, which Jack is still a proponent of, um, which is uh, the idea of vinyl records as being a part of that. It's a clever marketing push too for the album. If, yeah. if a radio station receives vinyl in this day and age, they're going, or at least in 2003, they're going to look at it and go, what the fuck? Well, like, especially <laughs> at that time when no one was, yeah. no one was doing this. So Jack, in, in some ways, by going back in time, was ahead of his time. 
We did a show about this called Jack White and the Vinyl Revolution last season. That's worth checking out with our friend Jesse from Jesse Carl Vinyl. So, yes, but this is way before any of that. There are a whopping 69 versions of the album released throughout the years. Nice. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Although that is worth noting that this is prior to the recent reissue or vault package, which would bring the total up to 71 and counting. You're welcome. 71 is the world's most uncomfortable position. It's where... (laughs) If someone lays down as flat as a board, they're planking. And someone uses their ab muscles to just stick their feet straight in the air, but they're back at an angle... And it, let me tell you, no one likes it. No yeah, one likes it's really it. not pleasurable for anyone. <laughs> but to be honest, neither is a 69. Hey, yo. Hey, yo. Uh, different nice. versions include a 2003 Thailand cassette version, which we did <laughs> mention at some point in the uh, show. Something called a Miss Press CD in the UK, also in 2003. There's a Greek version, which I think the band may have independently released or was somehow bootlegged and released there in 2003. And of course... Some versions like the Japanese and Filipino releases featured a DVD or VCD element, all of which have between two and four music videos per release, which are usually a mix of live cuts uh, mixed with official music videos. So those are the details there. All songs on the record were recorded to 8-track reel-to-reel at Torag Studios in April. Well, see, this is that's the weird thing. It says... All of them were recorded in April 2002 on Discogs, which I think we're pulling from the liner notes, which I think is wrong because there's, I am 90% positive that it's true that we love one another. It was from that November. Thing. <laughs> we'll, we'll get Ben Blackwell to weigh in on that, but I think that's actually wrong. There is one track which was not recorded at Rag, which mm-hmm. we will get to when we get to the track by track because I want to surprise you. I want to see if you can guess when you get to that okay. point. The album has a 50-minute runtime. So here's a bit of trivia for you, James. Mm. What's the White Stripes album with the longest runtime? The longest runtime, definitely not the self-titled. Definitely not the style. I'm going to go with Icky Thumb. Elephant. This is the longest. Is it really? Runtime hmm. of any White Stripes album. Self-titled was 43 minutes. Distill, 37 minutes. So that's a yeah. brisk album. Blood Cells, 40 Satan is 44, and Icky Thump is 48. So Icky All Thump right, so close. it was close, yeah. Now here's the another, other British album. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Now, here's another bit of trivia. Out of all Jack's albums across all his bands and solo projects, only one other album exceeds this runtime. Which one is it? Uh, it's none of the Dead Weather uh, albums. Um... Man, I'm going back and forth between Boarding House Reach and Consolers of the Lonely is pretty long. I think it's like 49 minutes. Boy, you're giving me a challenge here. Alright, I'm gonna get take a stab at it and go with Boarding House Reach. Your instincts initially were correct. Consolers of the Lonely comes in at a whopping 55 minutes 55 minutes so here's the other runtimes broken boy soldiers 33 help a stranger 41 whorehound 43 sea of cowards 35 dodge and burn 42 blunderbuss 41 lazaretto 40 
Boarding House Reach, 44. Fear of the Dawn, 39. Entering Heaven Alive, 40. So that's your trivia for today. Pretty short albums. The album was produced by Jack White. Uh, Liam Watson is listed as having recorded all of the tracks cut at Toe Rag, with that one exception. It was mixed by Jack White and Liam Watson. A quote from Liam, we basically mixed it in a day. Wow. The title is interesting. I never really knew the origins of the title. And again, this is largely based on the Sound of Mutant Blues book, which pulls a lot of different quotes. They describe the central thematics of elephant as corruption and the elephant, or the further the outside world encroaches upon the individual, the more wrong it will do them. Huh. In the CD booklet, Jack writes, This album is dedicated to and is for the death of the sweetheart. We mourn the sweetheart's loss in a disgusting world of opportunistic lottery ticket holders caring about nothing that is long-term, only the cheap thrill, the kick, and for the moment pleasure, the easy way out, the bragging rights, and trophy holding. Hmm. Okay. Jack goes on to tell <laughs> Jack goes on to tell the onion he's really angry this whole time. Jack goes on to tell the onion it wasn't a political statement so much as a social idea about the attitude. And here we go. Teenage girls with tattoos and body piercing and the white boy from the suburbs who adopts a ghetto accent. There's this whole attitude that you have to be hard right out the gate. And the sweetness and gentlemanly ideas are really going away. I've gotten the feeling that parenting and the way people are brought up now is getting away from these natural ideas and natural instincts in the male or female personalities. They're being sacrificed (laughs) for the idea of uh, the equality or good parenting. It's, um, It's stuff we see pop up again. Not so much these days. Mostly in Fox News diatribes. <laughs> uh, yeah, he actually talks about that a little later. I, I don't know if we're going to get to that here in the next episode, but he talks about that, actually. Goes out of the his male... way to say he's not a Republican, which is interesting. Oh, James, the male-female stuff, you have no idea. I know, I know, and I know he, he like at one point talked about Jordan Peterson, which is extremely disappointing <laughs> in so many ways. I think he has since let go of a lot of that of course yes of course yes a friend of mine who posted a a a story it was a a magazine cover of how um britney spears and paris hilton were going out partying without like underwear and shit like and how you know they're corrupting america but it was from the 2000s or whatever and she was like this is a perfect kind of piece of evidence that the trauma and shit that i endured that made me who I am and still goes with me today had nothing to do with Paris Hilton or Britney Spears. It had to do with the shitty way like people treated me as a woman. And I was like, Oh yeah, no. So the, she was going out of like, a, she did a whole thing about how there's a lot of people out there who will make that out to be the reason why people are falling apart. And it's really not, it's just a narrative anyway. It's this seems um... to be in that realm. Yeah, moral panic stuff. Again, that's nothing new. I think the Jack of today is clearly very different from this Jack in that way. He told Mojo, the main reason we named the album Elephant is the idea of one creature representing both Meg's and my own personalities, whether on stage or in real life. 
power, subtlety, anger, innocence, clumsiness, clumsiness, stability. Another reason was the way elephants relate to death. When a group of elephants come upon the remains of another elephant, they become very emotional and try to bury the bones, which directly relates to the death of the sweetheart. It's no longer the quiet version of elephant we planned. It's heavy duty. So there's an, there's some reinforcement of that quiet version that they were talking about, <clears throat> which, which they get to the next one. They do a quiet album next, more or less. It's funny how the picture that I have in my background has Jack like sucking his thumb and st- like they are trying to be. I guess they they still have the children aesthetic and motif going on. Yes, yeah. It's the starting the to, sweetheart thing is there. They're shifting away a little, but yeah. Uh, it was released on V2 in the US, XL in the UK, with rights reverting to Third Man for later pressings. The original UK vinyl was pressed at DeMont Pressing in Middlesex, England, and the original US release was pressed at United, which uh, he would go on to continue to use for many, many, many albums to come before he started his own thing. Uh, songs were published by Peppermint Stripe Music, except track four, published by New Hidden Valley Music, uh, which is the backrack one. Uh-huh. And it was mastered by longtime studio tech Noel Somerville at Transmutation Mastering Studios in London. The CD release usually includes a 12-page booklet with photos, credits, and lyrics. And Elephant is dedicated to, quote, The White Stripes thank God, family, and everyone who helped make this record and or inspire it with special thanks to David Frozen Swanson for his help documentation and friendship so there's all of that now we get to the art and design the cover uh was uh designed with layout credited to both the third man and art hole who is bruce brand bruce as he told us in our interview with him was sent six to eight different pictures color shifted they're not the same picture they're just from the same shoot where Meg's dress color changes, the cricket bat moves around, etc. Those were shot by Pat Pantano. And I went back and listened to our Pat Pantano episode uh, interview and pulled some of uh, the information for this from there. So again, I am now using our own podcast to research our own podcast. <laughs> um, Time is a flat circle. We are imploding <laughs> on ourselves. This is another shoot by Pat Pantano, who had also shot the White Blood Cells cover. Pat told us, Jack called him to tell them they were going to use a different photographer because this was supposed to be the English album. They were trying to get an English photographer. But then Dan John Miller, who was pseudo-managing the Stripes at the time, called Pat last minute to ask him to do it. Uh, He wasn't actually sure. He told us if there was another photographer who dropped out or if they just, something fell through. But something clearly fell through. The band set up a crate and the plan was to be seated around elephant ephemera with the hope that if you blurred your eyes, it would make a vague elephant shape. Which I never knew until Pat told us. Right, yeah. So a quote from Jack on this in Q Magazine in 2007. If you study the picture carefully, Meg and I are elephant ears in a head-on elephant. But it's a side view of an elephant too, with the tusks leading off either side. He went on to say, I wanted people to be staring at this album cover, and then maybe two years later having stared at it for the 500th time to say, hey, it's an elephant. Pat used his old twin lens to take the photo, forsaking the, quote, fancy year that was around in this proper studio where they shot the, uh, shot the cover. Pat lit the shoot, and the technical aspects of the shoot were also Pat's. 
And the idea that was not Jack's that he implemented was to hit the band hard on the left with light, which would create a shadow that comes off of Jack to simulate a shadowy third member of the group, which he told us in our interview with him. I think I can see James squinting at the elephant. I'm like trying to see the elephant. It's hard to see. There's a single cover with a mouse running by them that they shot at this day. And the Seven Nation Army single cover where Jack is painting was also shot on this same day. In total, there are six different versions of the sleeve, two for each territory, Asian, European, American, uh, CD and vinyl. The English version of the vinyl was supposed to come out as ruby red, but there was a printing error which wound up having it come out looking gray. More on the differences... The U.S. edition, Meg is sitting on the left of a circus travel trunk, and Jack is sitting on the right holding a cricket bat over the ground. While on the U.K. CD edition, the cricket bat touches the ground, and the image is mirrored so that their positions on the amplifier are reversed. The U.K. vinyl album cover is the same as the U.S. CD, but differs in that the color hues are much darker, which is what Bruce was talking about, that printer error. The cryptic symbolism of the album art includes a skull sitting on the floor in the background, as well as peanuts and peanut shells in the foreground. And on the circus travel trunk appears the Mark III, Jack's signature. Jack is also displaying a Mano Cornuta. I don't know what that is. And looking at a light bulb intensely, while Meg is barefoot and appears to be crying with a rope tied around her ankle and leading out of frame. Interesting to note, this is the same rope that is from the Dead Leaves and the Dirty Ground video shoot. Oh. You know, I never noticed that skull back there. Yeah. <laughs> no. I know. I'm looking at it now. I didn't even notice the peanut shells. I've noticed the rope he, and the he, light. Here's the thing. This is the one Jack album I don't own on vinyl. And really? I think it's for the same fear that I expressed earlier. Like, I really just don't want this album to ever feel bad or that my memory of it will ever be tarnished because it, it's meant so much to me at that time. So I just purposefully never bought it, but I'll now be getting it in the vault, which I would wonder if they're going to use a different um, photo from the shoot for the vault cover, which would be cool. I'm curious why their, uh, their hands both have knots tied on. Oh, yeah. So the, I, I didn't I quite finish what I was going through. So oh. uh, both have small white ribbons tied to their fingers. I don't have an explanation for it, but there you go. <laughs> and on the reverse side of the U.S. edition, all of the number threes are in red, disregarding the authorization notes at the bottom. The Record Store Day 2013 vinyl and August 2013 180-gram black vinyl reissues have Meg wearing a black dress instead of the usual white dress. The only other release with Meg wearing a black dress was on the V2 Advanced copy back in 2003. The Advanced copy was on red and white vinyl, while the Record Store Day copy has red, black, and white colored vinyl in 2013. And the credit style is based on a quote old blues record jack gave bruce brand to mimic bruce reversed all of the e's to threes on his own knowing jack had a fixation with the number pretty good pretty good idea good job bruce he, he read the room <laughs> <laughs> and that uh that brings us to the track by track on this which i think we're gonna save for next time 
I want to make sure we, uh, you know, take the time we need to actually go through this track by track because it, as mentioned, is a long album. Yes. You know, 50 minutes, 14 tracks. There's a lot to get through, but I think that'll be enough for, for its own show. Yeah. I'm going to listen to the album a couple times on a couple different formats because maybe the analog format's better. That's it, James. That's what I got on the Inception of Elephant. And uh, yeah, next time. All right. We'll go through that track by track. I mean, this is a lot of me talking today, but I found it kind of interesting to, to sort of go through the the actual chronology here. Yeah. Well, that's that's where we, that's how we started this stuff. One of us teaching the other <laughs> a little bit about some history, and so I I enjoy it. Um, James is like I for one. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. So uh, thank you for all of that re- research, Paul. And I think. Uh, is that, are we just, are we not doing, are we doing a third person? Our third person this week has been the album. <laughs> and no, the, our third person. <laughs> the shadow. It's the shadow <laughs> no, of us. I lit myself on the side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, our poor patrons. Listen, life came at us hot and heavy this year. <laughs> yep. Anyway, we love you. Oh, wait, how do we end the show? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Is that what you <laughs> That was your whole thing? Um, yeah, well, you know what? While, while we're at it, before we close today, I would like to uh, to thank our new Patreon patron, Trish Green. Thank you, Trish. Uh, that was that was very nice. Appreciate it. There's, we used to do this every episode, but we haven't done it in, in a bit. But um, we really are appreciative. I'm just looking up here to see if there's any more. We really are appreciative of uh of everyone who does donate kyle clayton uh thank you kyle that was uh that was really nice of you and um hell matthew jacobson (laughs) hey look at that that's nice (laughs) thanks matthew so yeah that's uh we really appreciate all the support and stuff It, it i was talking to Susanna the other day and you know the dream was always that this show would be self sustaining in terms of finance and funding and it is at this point we're able to keep this going without out-of-pocket costs. We don't make anything on the show, but we're at, we're able to keep it going without any out-of-pocket costs because you donate. So uh, in many ways, the show wouldn't exist without our Patreon patrons. Or at the very least, I would have had to hear it from Susanna, and I wouldn't have liked that very much. <laughs> yeah, I, long gone are the days. Long gone, John, are the days when I had to mail like PayPal Paul like a couple hundred bucks for her, her storage fees so thank you um for that because when we have kids it becomes harder to do that yeah and i i get that we chose that path but at least i have chosen a side it's right thank you james <laughs> and i know we've had a lot of fun at young jack white's uh perspectives expense today but like people are allowed to evolve over the course of their lives and are the product of their times as well as um, of uh their good sense, which he does have at this point. I mean, those those pull quotes that I, I shared there are not the only thoughts he has on the matter. And, you know, I would probably suspect that um, the point of view of people like Karen Elson and, and uh, of course, eventually Olivia Jean and things like that probably really helped him just evolve as a person. You know, I mean, that's just what happens when you look different people if you listen to the early episodes which don't don't do it uh you'll also see us evolve <laughs> oh they're bad very bad they're bad they're bad and that they're was only more... the course of a couple of years yeah that was 2016 when yeah. we were 
rallying for our our president, our current president, Donald J. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Good lord! All right. This has been fun. Until <laughs> part two, I will be looking for a home. On the menu of the pizza go. Oh man, you knew it. Just gonna, it's just gonna make me ill. I think. Yeah. The, the <laughs> there's the hot American. There's the hot Paul, <laughs> which has it's just whole brats. It's just brats. It's a hundred and sixty-three dollars worth of meat on that. <laughs> it's so much meat. It's so there's so much. <laughs> I'm going back um, there today. I'm going back. I'm gonna get some whoo- meat. I'm going to drop a cool two hundo, I think, this time. Oh, man. Well, Paul, you've read my mind about where I wanted to look for a home, so I'll find uh, myself looking for a home um, at the bottom of a glass of whiskey with Meg. I, you read my mind. I was gonna. I, that was going to be my second. was going to oh. be at, at the bar wherever Meg was while they were making the elephant <laughs> album. <laughs> All right. Well, we we love you. Bye. (laughs) The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com also visit at the third men underscore podcast on instagram at third men cast on twitter and search the third men on facebook thanks to our patreon patrons to everyone who has rated reviewed and subscribed and see you next time What's your favorite Simpsons character? Simpsons character. Uh, you like Ralph Wiggum, don't you, Meg? No. <laughs> I thought you did. I like, I like um, Mr. Burns. Mr. Burns. Oh, he's good, yeah. Simpson, eh? Millhouse is pretty cool, I like that. Millhouse is strong. Yeah. yeah. I'm the ha-ha guy. <laughs> Nelson. <laughs> Nelson, yeah, he's strong. <laughs> Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right. That's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody. I'll see you on the show.
And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. I, when listening to this album, the cats are fighting behind me. I'm watching them now. It's great. When I... (laughs) So I didn't realize you were referring to Frank. Frank, not Frank. Let's be Frank. (laughs) Just recording. He just went. Yeah. 